Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet, the weekly podcast of Tablet Magazine. I'm Sarah Ivory, your host. Today, we've got a lot of questions. Suppose you were a research assistant and were tasked with putting together a questionnaire that would capture everything there is to know about the beliefs and practices of Jews. What questions would you ask? That was the assignment faced by a small group of seminary students in St. Petersburg nearly 100 years ago in 1912. Over the next couple of years, those students came up with 2,087 questions, which span the life cycle from before conception to the afterlife. Here's one of my favorites. Is there a custom to place a cat, pieces of cake, or something else in the crib before one lays the child in it? The questionnaire was the brainchild of S. Ansky, an ethnographer who's best known as the author of the play The Dybbuk. Why he commissioned such a thing is just one of many questions we have for Nathaniel Deutsch, who's just published the first complete translation of Ansky's questionnaire. Deutsch is a professor of history and literature at UC Santa Cruz, and he's speaking with us from his office. Nathaniel Deutsch, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you for having me. Nathaniel, let's step back and first give some context to this questionnaire. It was meant, as I understand it, to be just one part of a vast ethnographic expedition that Ansky led through the Pale of Settlement, which is that part of Eastern Europe that was home to 40% of the world's Jews. What was the purpose of the expedition? So Ansky led the expedition between uh, 1912 and 1914, and his goal, which he actually states really explicitly in the introduction to the questionnaire, is to record and document um, traditional Jewish life before it disappeared. He, he felt very acutely that this kind of life was on the edge of um, of disappearing for a variety of reasons, immigration, assimilation, uh, persecution, etc. And uh, he wanted to have a record of it before before it disappeared, and also, which was really important for him, to to gather raw material that could then be used to produce a vibrant contemporary Jewish culture that was rooted in traditional Eastern European Jewish culture. So it wasn't just a matter of documenting these things, it was also a matter of using things like songs that he recorded or uh, tales that he uh, wrote down, and then incorporating it into things like the Dybbuk, what was his relationship to this world that he was so committed to documenting? He himself was born in a shtetl in the 1860s um, and then moved to Vitebsk, to um, a larger town, which was also later the home of Marc Chagall um, and a number of other important figures in, uh, in Eastern European Jewish life. And he had a traditional Jewish upbringing up to uh, his teenage years. Uh, and then he became interested in, in something called Russian populism. And he learned Russian. Yiddish was his native language. He uh, transformed himself into a Russian intellectual and spent a long, a long time in the populist movement and then ultimately in the uh, socialist revolutionary movement. And at a certain point after the 1905 revolution, he had, he, for a number of years, he had been, he had been outside of Russia. Uh, and then he returned after the 1905 revolution and he devoted himself to, uh, to Jewish life and especially to Jewish ethnography and to creating what he hoped would be a distinctly Jewish ethnography, not just an ethnography of the Jews, but an actual Jewish ethnography. In the introduction to the questionnaire, Ansky observes that the Jewish people not only have the written Torah, but they also have an oral Torah. But the oral Torah that he's referring to is not the same uh, 
sort of canon that we think of when we think of the oral Torah or Torah Shabal Peh. Can you make that distinction and lay out what those two kind of oral Torahs are? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you bring this up because for me, this is the pivotal point in terms of how Ansky was trying to create a distinctly Jewish ethnography and not just an ethnography of the Jews. Um, and that is, he saw the material that he was trying to collect as a kind of oral Torah, as a kind of Torah Shabal Peh. Um, traditionally, um, there are two types of Torah um, in Judaism. One is the, the, the written Torah and one is the oral Torah. Both are conceived of as having been given in Mount Sinai. One was passed down in written form, one was passed down orally, and then eventually, kind of paradoxically, is also written down. But that was always conceived of as the, um, the traditional oral, oral Torah, as the product of a kind of elite chain, and then it was written down um, by the rabbis. And so what Ansky does is something which is both really radical and really conservative. It's really conservative in the sense that he uses that category of oral Torah. So if you want to do something, if you want to make something a part of Jewish tradition, you call it Torah. And if other people agree with you, then it becomes part of Judaism or, or of Jewishness. On the other hand, it's radical because, one, he is saying that this is not the product of revelation. It doesn't go back to Sinai. It's a product of the Jewish people. So it's, it's, it's the kind of folk practices, tales, music, all of these things that uh, the regular Jewish people have produced over the centuries. That also is a kind of Torah and has an has a, has a equal status to the kinds of Torah that were produced um, by the elite, is how he would conceive of it, rather than, than the Torah that was revealed. And that is the object of Jewish ethnography, the oral Torah. Now, it, we should say that this list of questions, this questionnaire, never actually reached the intended respondents, did it? It didn't. So, um, as you mentioned in your intro, it was something that was put together collectively, um, which is also something that, to me, is a, is a really um, uh, kind of classical Jewish way of producing uh, text, is to produce it collectively for collective consumption, not just a, a single a single author producing a text that will be read by a single individual. And so once it was produced, and Ansky relied on, as you mentioned, a group of, of students, some of whom were actually rabbis or had received smicha, but a majority of them had uh, some yeshiva background. And so they were really, they really had a good sense of, um, of not only the, the traditional Jewish culture that they had grown up in, in, in a variety of places throughout the Pale of Settlement, but also the elite rabbinic culture, which is another thing I think that's important to point out that maybe we can talk about later. Once the document is produced, World War I starts. So it takes a few years to produce it. Ansky initially had hoped to produce it in a few months. It ended up taking a few years. And uh, World War I started, and it was never distributed. So what we have is this questionnaire of over 2,000 questions without any answers. The questions themselves are pretty fascinating in their own right. I'm going to read a few of them right now from the section on pregnancy. Is there a belief that if a woman eats a double nut, she will give birth to twins? What medicines, precautions, and other means are employed in order to have clever children? Is it a common belief that in most cases the children will resemble the mother's brother? Is it a common belief that the appearance and resemblance of children depends on what the mother sees during the time that she is leaving the mikveh? Therefore, a pregnant woman should not look at impure animals and fowl, on crippled, ugly, sinful, or evil people, or at ugly pictures. Those are such detailed questions. To what extent 
could we or should we think of this questionnaire as descriptive of life and of the beliefs and practices that people held in the Pale of Settlement? So that's another excellent question. Um, to me, it, it, it wasn't a big concern that we didn't have answers to the questions, because as you point out, just by reading a small sample of the questions, the questions themselves are very, very detailed. And the reason why is because the people who put it together were experts in, in life in the, the, in the communities of the Pale of Settlement, because they came from there. And also, as I said, they were also, uh, in many cases, experts in um, elite Jewish literature, that is legal literature, which Ansky, in, Ansky tried to differentiate between the elite and the, quote, common or popular Jewish practices and beliefs. In fact, you can't do that. Um, because there's an enormous amount of intersection. So, for example, one of the questions you read there is what women see when they're when they're pregnant. Um, how does that affect the appearance or the character of the child? Um, therefore, you want to be careful what what you look at while you're um, while you're pregnant. Something that's called maternal imprinting, generally, and there are a lot of cultures that believe that. Um, like, for example, the Elephant Man. And if you ever if you ever read the the book or saw the movie, he talks about how his mother might have been frightened by an elephant when she was pregnant with him. And that's why he ended up looking the way he did. Mm -hmm. Well, in terms of the Jewish case, there's a tradition in the Talmud that there was a really beautiful rabbi named Rabbi Yochanan. And when the women left the mikvah, they used to uh, try to, he would stand out there and they would want to look at him so that their children were as beautiful as he was. Now, that's underlying that question. And um, the people who composed the question knew that. And so there's a great example where a tradition in, in a classical Jewish text is in the background of a question and did have an influence on the folk belief, but there were other, there were other influences on the folk belief as well. And so you have, a, you have, number one, the relationship between Jewish literature and Jewish folk belief and practice is really important. Number two, um, what Anske was interested in doing more than, more than finding out whether these things existed is whether they still existed, if they had, have they gone away as a result of modernization, for example, or did they exist in one community and not in another? So he knows that the practice or the belief exists among Jews in, in most cases. I mean, there are some cases where he, he may not have been sure. But he wanted to know whether, let's say, in Ludmir they do it, whereas in Lutsk they don't. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? Or if they did it 50 years ago, but they no longer do it anymore. So in a way, he was trying to, to gauge the degree of, of change over time, potentially, as well as the geographic distribution of different practices and beliefs by distributing the questionnaire to different places and getting the answers and seeing whether you know a particular belief was um, existed in one town versus another. Nathaniel, you're the first person to fully translate this questionnaire from Yiddish into English, and we're talking about more than 2,000 questions. Why did you want to do this? Um, I asked myself that a lot, actually, <laughs> while, I, while I was doing it, because uh, it was pretty arduous. Um, it was really a matter of coming, coming to the questionnaires because of a specific interest that I had. I was working on another project, and I, I, I came across a questionnaire. And as I started to read more of it, I realized that this was the kind of portrait of Jewish life in the Pale of Settlement that you just do not get in uh, either kind of normative history works or in literature, literary portraits. Its focus on the mundane was just so unique um, and so, so detailed 
and so rich and vibrant that I felt compelled to make it accessible to a wider public. And since no one else had done it, I took it upon myself. And uh, I, as I said, like there were times when I when I wondered what I was doing, but uh, but now that it's done, I'm happy that I did it. Was the work hard? Was it taxing? Yeah, it was taxing. It was. I mean, in the course of doing it, my father passed away. Uh, my two kids were born. Um, I, I moved. A lot of things happened because it, it ended up taking eight years. Mm-hmm. And, and I also... The, the translation itself wasn't the hardest part. The hardest part was was framing it. Half of the book is a translation. Half of the book is framing it, telling the story of what Anski was trying to do on the expedition, um, what he did on the expedition, and also what he was trying to do with the questionnaire, what he was trying, how he was trying to create a Jewish ethnography. And then lastly, there's the commentary on the questionnaire. And that's what that final piece really took a lot out of me. To I wanted to make sure that I didn't end up answering all the questions myself or trying to and that and I was tempted to do that um except that I don't live in the pale of settlement in 1914 so <laughs> it was it was a very that it would have been impossible for me to answer all the questions but on the other hand I wanted to make sure that the questions made sense to readers who would have you know possibly no background in this stuff what questions in the survey particularly struck you as you were working on translating it? Maybe they struck you because they were very strange or maybe because they weren't at all strange and somehow they spoke to fears or desires or contemporary behaviors. Well, one of the things that became not strange after after reading the questionnaire and working with it, living with it, was the degree to which death was an important part of life and the degree to which the... Um, there, the the boundary between life and death that let's say in um, 21st century America is often so stark uh, for them was not and the dead were a really important part of their community um, so for example question number 1939 is there a belief that the soul of a dead person is present in the candle that burns during the week of Shiva um, Okay, well, that taps into a whole whole set of beliefs that a number of the other questions get into, which is that um, the soul of a dead person can can be present even after the person dies, or um, they might come to the synagogue at night and worship, and so you don't want to go to the synagogue late at night because they dead people might be there, you know, or, or their souls might be there. So a lot of the questions about death. Um, really struck me. He was particularly interested, Ansky was, in documenting practices in the Hasidic community. Why was yeah. that? Um, first of all, there's a bigger context to that, which is which is that in Eastern Europe and also among German Jews, there was uh, someone like Martin Buber is, is a great example of this. There was a tendency to view Hasidism as a um, kind of repository for a vibrant Jewish tradition that other Jews had moved away from, either through assimilating or immigrating. There's a whole, you know, a whole range of ways in which that happened. And that Hasidim were holding on to uh, some kind of kernel of traditional Jewish wisdom or practice uh, that, uh, that other Jews had left behind. And uh, as someone who was interested in, in folk practices and beliefs, Anski felt that the Hasidim had preserved a lot of those things in a way that other Jews in the Pale had not. And so he felt that by, by targeting Hasidic communities in particular in his ethnography, he could document those kinds of things um, 
in a more effective way. Another thing that was really important, I think this is one of his kind of major insights and another way in which he was trying to create a distinctly Jewish ethnography, he he perceived of Hasidim as kind of proto-ethnographers. Because there had been a, a, a tradition of Hasidim going and, for example, taking songs that were sung by non-Jewish shepherds or other other non-Jews and, and taking the melody or the niggin and getting rid of the words, but keeping the niggin. And they understood that in Kabbalistic way of getting rid of the, the kind of the husk and just keeping the kernel, which they saw as, um, as having a holy spark. And so Hasidim in general were also, also like to collect things and gather things. And um, I think he saw them as a kind of a, of a, of a kind of indigenous ethnographic or proto-ethnographic uh, tradition that he was continuing in, in some fashion, even though he himself was not what we would call religious. I mean, he wasn't religious. He, he remained a socialist revolutionary mm-hmm. <laughs> throughout all of this. <laughs> now, you yourself drew upon the Hasidic community in 21st century Brooklyn for help in translating and interpreting this questionnaire. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so it wasn't it wasn't translating. It was more um, at a certain point I decided that I wanted to see whether I could use the questionnaire to gauge change, but also the transmission of tradition in contemporary Hasidic communities. So because Ansky had focused so much on, on Hasidim, um, and because Hasidim now uh, pride themselves on preserving tradition, I wanted to see whether the questionnaire could still be used with those communities. And by seeing whether questions were still relevant or how people might answer the questions, um, to see to what degree things had changed. I mean, if a question was did not even make sense to them, that would suggest that, you know, they had moved away from at least that particular kind of uh, belief or practice. Um, on the other hand, if they if if they continued to do a lot of the practices that were in the questionnaire, it would suggest that there had, that there was a lot of continuity at least in that area. And so what I what I did was I initiated a or tried to initiate anyway a project of getting Hasidim in communities in Brooklyn to answer the questionnaire. And um, I started out by working with two Hasidim in different communities, one in Williamsburg um, in the Satmar community and one uh, Lubavitcher in the Crown Heights, and going through the questionnaire with them and, and having them answer the questions. And um, what that meant in practice was going uh, a couple times a week to study houses and sitting down with these guys and learning different things and also learning different texts, I mean, like the Gomorrah. And um, and then we would take out the questionnaire and, and answer some questions for a while and go back to learning something else and then answer some more questions and, and so on. And it took many, many months of this to get through hundreds of questions. Um, that and some other things made convince me that it probably was going to work out to to have this be a kind of, uh, to get a large sample, let's put it that way, of, of people answering the questionnaire. What were some of the other obstacles in that collaboration? Well, so one of the other obstacles which I talk about in the book was having a meeting with uh, with a Hasidic Rebbe to talk about the questionnaire and to get his support because I, I, I figured that if I could get um, this particular Rebbe to support it and to encourage um, his followers to answer the questions that it would really help me. So I went to meet him and it so happened that uh, my my child's babysitter at the time got sick and so I had to bring my daughter with me and so we showed up and we met him, and um, I showed him the questionnaire, 
and he paged through it and we kind of we talked about each other's backgrounds for a while and then he asked me whether Ansky was from whether he was religious and um I I mean it, it was <laughs> I had to give a kind of complicated answer because answering that is is it was not so easy basically I said he was but then he ceased to be and um it became clear after that that uh that the Rebbe was not going to was not going to help with the project and um, he gave my my daughter, or he offered to give my daughter a, a bracha as we left, and that was uh, that was it for that. And some of the Hasidim who I had been working with, um, or or had expressed interest in working with me up up to that point, in in the coming weeks after that, kind of bowed out. And I don't know whether it had anything to do with the uh, with with my meeting with the Rebbe or not. And I also should say, as I mentioned in the book, that it's it's also quite likely that the Rebbe looked at me and, and, and was like, well, are you, what's going on with you? Mm-hmm. You know, should I, should I be supporting, uh, should I be supporting this project? Not only because Wodoransky was religious, but what's your story exactly? And so, uh, that was something that, it, I mean, in general, I was, I had people accepted me well within the communities, uh, and were very curious about the project and really were fascinated by the questionnaire. Sometimes it depended on the individual. There was one guy who it looked like he would be a promising person to work with, and we met. And um, rather than being particularly interested in the questionnaire, he was interested in the fact that I was driving a Prius. <laughs> and he was really into, he was really into my Prius, which was it was right when the Priuses came out, more or less. Well, and they were was, cool. They were cool, and I was trying to get him. I was like, "Look, there's this questionnaire," and I had it in my hand. He's like. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, can, do you mind if we go for a ride in, in your car? <laughs> so, but that was that was fine too. You know, that's the kind of thing that you know. In fact, that's the kind of thing that Ansky would encounter too. People were really into the into the uh, phonographic equipment that he had. He he was a he was a pioneer in terms of the kind of technology that he brought to do the ethnography in the pale. And so, one of the, some of the most uh, kind of pungent descriptions are and vivid descriptions are having people talk into the recording equipment. He used um, early Thomas Edison wax cylinder recording equipment. And um, what they would do is they would, uh, they, would pull, they would have people sing a song or tell a story and they would intentionally cough or make a mistake and then they would play it back with the cough or the mistake and people would just be like... Because people had heard in a number of cases like songs and things like that, but it would never have the, the mistake in it. And, and, that, and there was something about the disruption that people were just astounded. And so, you know, the fact that somebody might be interested in the Prius and not the questionnaire is not, you know, necessarily so so surprising. As you point out in the book, you can't help but be struck by the impossibility of this questionnaire ever fulfilling its purpose, even if historical events like the First World War had not happened. It really seems unlikely that uh, the intention to have a vast population fill out more than 2,000 questions would ever have been feasible. Do you think he understood that this project kind of verged on the absurd? Uh, I don't think he did. Um, I think you're right that it does verge on the absurd. And um, he worked with a, with an ethnographer named Lev Sternberg, who's a very prominent Russian-Jewish ethnographer um, of the day, who clearly had doubts about about the whole thing and was concerned that this was not, was not going to work out. Um, but Ansky uh, had a utopian approach to things in general. And uh, he was someone who, for example, 
he never really had a place to live. He lived on people's couches and he carried everything around in a, in a suitcase, all of his belongings. And he, and yet he got an enormous amount done and he was a socialist revolutionary. And he had this vision of, of Jewish ethnography as not simply um, something which a group of scholars would do in a university somewhere. He actually saw ethnography as I argue in the book as the, the chief mode uh, by which Jews could perform Jewishness. That's what he hoped for. That was another way in which he, he wanted to distinguish Jewish ethnography from just ethnography of the Jews, that he wanted to have societies of amateur ethnographers or zomlers, collectors in Yiddish, um, in all the shtetls in, in the Pale. And he wanted ethnography, he wanted people to go out and collect traditions themselves. And he wanted them to... Um, not only do that, but then to use those traditions, as I mentioned before, to create this vibrant contemporary Jewish culture, which was nevertheless grounded in tradition. And so for him, ethnography was was a kind of utopian, or at least Jewish ethnography, was a kind of utopian activity in its own right. And also to connect up to some of the stuff I mentioned earlier about Hasidism and a certain Kabbalistic idea in, in Hasidism of collecting sparks, divine sparks that exist, uh, in, in fundamentally everything that you can that you can distill, um, he thought that ethnography could do that too. That it was the responsibility of the ethnographer to and of the Jewish ethnographer to fundamentally collect every and record every Jewish practice and belief that you could, because every single one of those had a spark or, as he put, a, the spirit of the Jewish people in it. So, so he really did use these these kind of native Jewish categories of. Uh, Kabbalistic Hasidic categories and use them to re to reimagine what ethnography could be in a Jewish register, and um, he couldn't stand. And you see this over and over again in terms of the expedition. He could not stand it when there was a song that someone had. He knew that someone knew a song and they wouldn't sing it for him. He would do anything that he could to get them to sing it for him, <laughs> including subterfuge. You know, there was a there's a there's a story I talk about in the book where there was an old woman who knew a lullaby that had been sung to a Hasidic Rebbe, a famous Hasidic Rebbe, and she wouldn't sing it for Ansky. And it had to do with the fact that he was a man, she was a woman, he was a stranger, he comes out of, from out of town, and suddenly he shows up and he wants this old woman, very respected matriarch of a important family in this particular town, to sing the song. And finally he convinced her to sing it while while he was in another room, and what she didn't know was that they were recording it. <laughs> and so for him, you know, and he would do all sorts of other things, you know, it, for him, he he needed to have that. So that song was an expression of the Jewish people. And in that sense, it was holy for him, not because it was revealed by God, but because it came from the Jewish people. So that's what motivated him. Nathaniel, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Nathaniel Deutsch has a translation and study of S. Ansky's questionnaire out from Harvard University Press. It's called The Jewish Dark Continent, Life and Death in the Russian Pale of Settlement. For more about the book, visit our website, tabletmag.com. And while you're there, you can look at some really gorgeous illustrations of some of our favorite questions as interpreted by Tablet Magazine's very own Abigail Miller. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. We are so grateful that you listen every week, and we hope you'll keep on doing it.